Father, we thank you for this time tonight. We submit it to you. I thank you for each and every question that came in. I ask that you would uh, enable me to be clear, enable us to hear well and to, uh, to be understood. We thank you for this, this congregation, for this church, and for our presence in this community. You have called us to be light to those who are around us, and we desire to be faithful. We desire to shine brightly as your lights and as those who proclaim Jesus Christ and his glorious gospel. And so help us tonight, surround us with your presence and with your peace, and uh, bless our time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Oh, come on in. Yeah, we'll let the, I, I feel loud enough. When, when I was up closer because of where the speakers are, it, it reverberates a little bit. But thanks, everybody, for coming. We had 13 questions that were asked of us, asked of me, I guess. Um, as, as, I, as I went through the questions, they kind of divided themselves into three areas. Uh, the first area is concern, or practices. Uh, the second area is concerns. And the third area is biblical issues. And we're going to do it, we're going to take them in that order. Practices, concerns, and biblical issues. Um, time provi- I'm, I'm here till we're done, if you're here, here until we're done. I, I don't know how long it's going to take, um, but I'm committed to getting through these, provided that you're, you're not fading into the sunset. Um, every question will be put up on the screen so that you can see it. I typed every question exactly as it was written out. I still have the written questions at home, so if you submitted a written question and you feel that I mistyped it or I misrepresented, please tell me. I'll do what I can to match it up, and we'll solve that issue, but I I believe that I got them typed uh, as they were given. Uh, With the the two questions regarding practices, there are actually four questions, but they, they seem to connect with one another in terms of either the, the question itself or the, the answer. First, why don't we have more church fellowship times, picnics, meals, etc.? And who decides the calendar of events? And uh, it's the same answer. We don't have these things because no one is planning them. It'd be so much more satisfying to stand up here and say, we don't have them because I don't believe in them. But the reality is, is, is I don't think that way. I'm an introvert. I, I work in my own little study, in my own little world. And on things like this, if somebody doesn't say, hey, what about, I just don't think about it. So we don't have it because no one's planning them. And no one in particular is deciding a calendar of events. Would you like to? The, the position certainly would be open. I think is we when we talked about elders and deacons, one of the things that we would like elders the, or the, the the board of deacons and deaconesses to perhaps look at is arranging those types of things and being focused on those types of things. Um, if, if something has been missed, it's not because it was seen on a calendar and disregarded. Something is missed because I'm just not thinking that way. Uh, second question is, or two questions, and they are connected, although they seem to be opposite. Why does the service keep changing? 
And why do we always say the Lord's Prayer? Almost always. Um, keep changing sounds as if there's no consistency week to week. And that's, that's not really true. There have been some changes. Uh, a couple of years ago, for the first couple of years I was here, we recited the Apostles' Creed together. Uh, I don't know, two years ago maybe, uh, Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul's ministry, published a, a creed called The Word Made Flesh, and, and we've been reciting that. We can certainly go back to the Apostles' Creed. There are a couple of other creeds that are a little longer, but, but very good. My intention was never to, to make a permanent change, but that was a change. Um, uh, the headings in the bulletin. Do you have a bulletin there, Linda? Thank you. Uh, the, the headings in the bulletin, coming into the presence of God, orienting our thinking toward God, spiritual nourishment from God, responding to God. Um, the, printing the headings is new. That's always how I've crafted services. I've done this for 25 years, and I've always thought of our worship time together as coming in the back, and then we move toward the Lord until we finally leave. Right, so we we have to kind of ground ourselves in the Lord and uh, come into His presence, and then we need to orient our thinking toward God, and then there's spiritual nourishment that comes through the Word and through Nan's children's sermon, and then finally we respond and we respond in prayer. One of the reasons that we moved our prayer time to the end of the service was that idea of rather than just opening it up as as a kind of announcement. Let's, let's put it in a place when we've worshipped, when we've sung, when we have heard the word of God, when we've had time together, and, and now having all of that, we're actually presenting our, our petitions before the Lord. Uh, so we've made some changes. The first change, I, the first Sunday, I think we, we moved the prayer time. We also moved the announcement time to the end, and that felt clumsy to me. It's like, wow, you come to the end of the service and it's really a heartfelt time and then we stop and we do business. Let's do the business at the start to begin. Um, uh, the scriptures command us to sing, pray, read scripture, be taught the scripture, encourage one another and share in the Lord's Supper when we gather. That's kind of the set of the things that we do. It doesn't require any particular order. It doesn't demand that we sing a certain number of songs or we pray in a certain way that we stand or we sit or we all pray the same thing or, or we share. Here when we, when we take prayer requests, if Danny is doing that like this morning, he takes the request and then he prays for them and then we finish. At One Hope Fellowship in, in Norfolk, our church there, we take prayer requests. I type them in on my computer so everybody can see them on the screen. I open the prayer time. And then anybody who wants to pray is free to pray. And then once everything or mostly everything has been gone through, I might touch on the last couple things and then close in prayer, and then we have our singing time. Um, the reality is, is that we do follow largely the same pattern week after week, which kind of leads, I think, to the second question. Why do we always say the Lord's Prayer? Here's the, spec- here's the spectrum. Here's the spectrum of this. We have people in our fellowship who... who came out of a liturgical background where there was a lot of consistency and they find comfort in that consistency. That's, I, I don't have a problem with that at all. That's why we continue to say the Lord's Prayer. We also have people who would be more like me who, who were not brought up with any kind of a liturgical history at all. And so 
we can, on those of us on that side, can assume if you do it week after week, it loses meaning. And we don't want it to lose meaning. So what we have are these, these two different positions and these two different values. So why recite the Lord's Prayer every week? Because it's a biblical prayer. It's the only one Jesus taught us to pray. Because I think it's good for us to pray together. Uh, for some, again, it's a very, very meaningful part of the service. Frankly, it's, it's a way of ending the service that doesn't involve simply saying, well, we're done. It, it actually provides a, a sense of closure to that. Um, now, I'm going to mention this kind of idea as we go through. Because some of these questions are not questions of the Bible. They're questions of me. And I'm, I'm good with that. We haven't really done this since I've been here. But some of these questions felt like the pencil had been sharpened a little bit. Um, some accuse me of disrespecting their traditions just because they're traditions. If that were true, we wouldn't be closing with the Lord's Prayer each week. I do challenge traditions if I feel that they're being clung to above Scripture. I feel that that's my responsibility as a pastor, as a, a shepherd of the body of Christ. Um, so I'm not opposed to tradition. I am opposed to tradition out of uh, such habit that you're not thinking about what you're doing. If, on the other hand, you're on the side of, but we pray it every week and it loses meaning, I, all I can suggest is that you do what I do, which is to really pray it. Don't recite it. We could do a contest. I'm sure some of you could beat me in this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I haven't prayed. I've been a parrot. So on Sunday morning as Danny leads that, I'm thinking about it. It goes quickly because we're doing it together, but I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about the people I need to forgive. I'm thinking about my own sins. I'm thinking about my need for a provider today. So that, I, I think that that's one of those areas where we have differing backgrounds and differing expectations. And uh, if you remember what I said a couple of weeks ago in, in the Philippians 2, 2-4 to 4 message, and at the end where... Uh, it, I, I suppose I spanked the church a little bit. I didn't mean it to come out that way, but I guess it did. What I would urge you to do is hold both of those loosely. If, if you value praying the Lord's Prayer at every service, bless you for that. But will you hold it loosely for the sake of those who have a different view? And if, if, you, if you value keeping things moving, would you hold that loosely for the sake of those who value it? We can do that. We can do that. In our, in our family, maybe your family does a similar thing. When it's your birthday, you get to pick the restaurant where we eat. Um, our daughter Sarah is married, so she's not so much an issue anymore. Kevin is either going to pick Applebee's or Mexican food. Applebee's is fine with Grace, but Grace hates Mexican food. Grace is going to pick Chinese food. There is no food that Kevin hates more than Chinese food. 
And so when Grace says, I want to go to have Chinese food for my birthday, Kevin, Kevin's tendency is to go, well, I don't like Chinese food. And we have to say, look, on your birthday, you get to pick. We can find things there that are roughly acceptable for you to eat. Yes, it's not what you would order, but can you do this for your sister? And likewise, when it comes to his birthday and we say to Grace, we're having Mexican food, she'll say, okay, I can get a burger. She doesn't get burgers. She doesn't eat hamburgers, really. But that's all they have. Most Mexican restaurants have hamburgers and fries. So that's what our family does. And, and we just have to say, look, there are times it's for him, and there are times it's for her. And that kind of has to be okay. Let's, let's move on to the concerns. There were the, the first... Uh, the, the first one there is, again, going to be two questions. I'm sorry it's a little bit small, but I wanted to get them both on there. These are the full questions. Why are decisions made only by a few? Change is fine, but people like to be informed before. Changes are made. That's the way it's going to be. And if you're, okay with, if you're not okay with it, this isn't the place for you. I think that's meant to be a quote. Sad we don't mean more than that. And the second question, we have now lost two more families with possibly more to follow. Does anyone ask why or care? It seems if you don't fit the criteria of some, you don't count. Pastor said a few weeks ago, this is the way it is. If you don't like it here, there is the door. Many are using that door one way to leave. Um, so let's, let, me, let me work through this. Why are decisions being made by only a few. Change is fine, but people like to be informed before. The truth is very few significant decisions are made by me, or even by the council for that matter. Uh, on January 28th, um, 38 people voted on whether or not to have elders in this church. 28 people said yes, 10 said no. But 38 people voted on that issue. Everyone was informed. You had the, the Constitution, the proposed Constitution, weeks beforehand. I preached two sermons on it in the weeks prior to that. Both sermons are, are online, by the way, and I sent Danny a link, so it's on the, the Facebook page if you want to listen to that. And during the meeting, Danny went through, and as he read paragraph by paragraph, I think after every single paragraph, he stopped and said, are there any questions or comments, anything like that? And nobody spoke up. So I think that there are not a whole lot of changes that are being made in a unilateral way. And I think on these serious issues, there's, there's conversation going on. We did the same thing, by the way, in February of 2014 when we amended our Constitution to deal with the issue of homosexual marriage. Uh, the first question has the statement in there, changes are made, that's the way it's going to be, and if you're not okay with it, this isn't the place for you. Sad, we don't mean more than that. And the second question includes the statement, Pastor said a few weeks ago, this is the way it is. If you don't like it, there is the door. Um, I said words to that effect. I probably said words very close to that. I don't know if that's an exact quote, but I probably got close. But I didn't open up the service this way. This was at the end of a message dealing with two issues for, for me that week. The first was the, the, the disagreement over the observation of Lent, which was difficult. I'm an introvert, and I don't share with you because it's not appropriate, especially in a sermon. 
But this kind of stuff keeps me up for nights at a time. I hate the idea that there's conflict. I hate it. Linda will tell you that. I, I do pretty good weight loss when there's conflict going on because I just don't want to eat. On Thursday of that week, Stephanie Westerhouse died. And I came into that Sunday really with a very different attitude in all honesty. With her death, I was shaken again to the core of how silly certain issues can be and how much we have to cling together. And if you listen to, uh, if, if you listen to that message, I, I should have recorded it here and I didn't. But if you listen to the message as I recorded it in Norfolk, and if you think to what I actually said that morning, I didn't rebuke those who wanted Lent for wanting Lent. And I didn't rebuke those who don't want Lent for not wanting Lent. I called all of us to put Jesus Christ and his word in the middle and to move toward him. And to do so with an open hand and to do so with grace and with mercy. You do mean a tremendous amount to me. I pray for each and every you, every one of you every week. Some of you are not here very often. And, and others are not here very often at all. I pray for them every week. I labor over you in prayer. And I labor over the word for you. And so I am not okay with the idea of people being unhappy and leaving. That being said, when people leave for reasons of personal preference over issues where there doesn't seem to be a willingness to yield to both sides. Now, we're not talking about doctrinal issues here. We're not talking about the resurrection, the deity of Christ. We're not talking about things that actually come down to doctrinal issues. We're not talking about issues of immorality or sin. We're talking about preferences. And what I said that Sunday and what I believe with my whole heart is that if you have a preference that is dear to you, deep in your heart, and that is not being satisfied here, then you need to consider whether this is the church for you rather than agitating for it to become the church that you want it to be. See, we've got a room full of people, half of whom like Mexican and half of whom hate Mexican, and we have to agree that we're going to get along. That's Paul's urging to Yodi and Syntyche in Philippians 4. He, he, it's not, again, I'll, I'll say this, I don't believe it's a doctrinal issue because I think he would have corrected it if it were, and I don't think it's a sin issue because I think he would have rebuked it. I think it came down to a preference issue, what, and we don't know what that was. But I think it came down to a preference issue for these two ladies. And they were both clinging so tightly to their preferences that they had broken with one another. And that breaking was affecting the church. We're not told this. This is my guess, but I think it's a reasonable guess. I think the reason Paul names them is because everybody knew that they were having this conflict anyway. And if Paul said, tell the two ladies who were in conflict, everybody would have turned and looked at them anyway. So you may as as well name them. I want you to imagine something for me. I want you to imagine that you have two people in front of you. I want you to imagine that the person on one side says, if you preach from the New International Version, I'm leaving your church. 
And the other person says, if you don't preach from the New International Version, I'm leaving your church. Neither side's going to give up their position. They're both utterly convinced, and they're not going to change. Both insist on having their own way. You can't make them both happy. So what will you do? What will you decide? Who will you side with and why? And, and by the way, there's only two outcomes. The one outcome is that they both stay and the conflict continues and possibly spreads. And the other outcome is one of them leave. And if that happens, it's your fault. It's your fault. Because they both held this and wouldn't yield. It's your fault. Here's how I approach those issues. If there's a biblical issue at stake, I go with what the Bible says. If there's a biblical issue at stake, I go with what the Bible says. If, if you believe with all of your heart that reciting the Lord's Prayer at the end of each service violates Jesus saying, uh, don't pray with vain repetitions like the Gentiles do. Make your case with Scripture and let's talk about it from a biblical point of view. Maybe you'll change my mind. If there's a biblical issue, the biblical position is my position. If there is no biblical position, how do I decide? What if I have those two people standing in front of me saying, my way or I leave? My way or I leave? I think that there was a time when I would have tried to work it out with them. And I've given that up. I would do what Paul did with Yodi and Syntyche and say, I appeal to both of you without requiring that you give up your preference. I ask that you both hold your preference loosely for the sake of peace here. For the sake of peace here. For the record, I have my own preferences when it comes to worship music. If you believe that the songs that we use here are my preference, you're wrong. I have my own preference when it comes to the elements used in communion. If you believe that the elements used here are my preference, you're wrong. I have my own preference when it comes to a congregational prayer time. If you believe that our prayer time is conducted according to my preferences, you're wrong. I've yielded to other people on that. This church had a practice when I came of, of serving, serving wine with communion and, and the, the little communion wafers. How many of you, uh, this won't put you on the spot, just how many of you were raised with those wafers? Okay, a lot of you. Would, would it, if, and I, please, I mean no disrespect, I'm just asking. If we showed up one Sunday with goldfish, you know, the little goldfish crackers, how many of you would have a hard time with that? And it's okay to raise your hand. See, then, then or gummy bears. We're not going to do gummy bear, whoever said that. Um, that's enough reason for me to say then we continue to use those wafers because it, it doesn't matter. Now, to me, they, they, they feel weird and they taste weird, but it's this little thing. If you, if you think that 
everything that happens here is according to my own demands and personal desires that's just not correct. If actually, I'll, I'll make you this invitation and all of you can make it because we make it every single week. If you wanna know how I would construct a, a church service, come to One Hope Fellowship some Sunday. And you'll see how I would do it when I'm really the only one there to make decisions at the beginning. And it's not what we do here. Linda will tell you that. My mom will tell you that. On issues of preference, the biblical call is not to agitate to make other people follow our preference. The, the biblical call is to pursue peace with one another. It's what I desire of you. It's what I desire of me. If I can accommodate without violate, violating my conscience, without violating scripture, I'll do that as much as I can. It's never my goal to, to alienate anyone. I hate to see anyone leave. I bear every departure from this church as a failure. And I carry it. Truth is, if we take something like Lent, as an example, if we take something like infant baptism, uh, several years ago a young couple had visited for a few months, a couple of months maybe, and left because I, I don't do infant baptism. And I don't do it because I don't believe that it's biblical. It's not a prejudicial view. It's not something I got out of a denominational book. It's because I've spent time in the Word studying the issue. I've listened to John MacArthur in favor, uh, uh, opposed to infant baptism. I've listened to R.C. Sproul in favor of it. I'm just not convinced it's biblical. I have a conscience I have to obey when it comes to Scripture. The, this couple left because, um, because I, I, I don't do that. I really have no problem with that. They have a persuasion from Scripture that it ought to be done. I don't have a problem with anybody going where that value is shared. I do have a problem with somebody saying, I must share it because it's valuable to them. I, I guess part of what I'm saying is I reserve the same right to be a human being that you have, to have my likes and dislikes and to have to follow my conscience. The next question is, years ago our leadership talked about the need to have a face in the community to grow our church. Have we now decided it is not important to do this? Um, if having a face in the community means having a pastor that lives in Creighton, then you're going to have to pay a full-time salary. And 29000 last year and change is not a full-time salary, not for us. Um, the biblical means of building a church, by the way, is not having a person uh, who is the, the face of the church. It's actually having the congregation represent the whole body of Christ in the community. Let me tell you about yourselves, in case you don't know this about yourselves. We've shared significant finances with people in our community as a church. When I came here, uh, for the first year, year and a half I was here, we were making regular gifts to Jennifer Cooper. I wouldn't know Jennifer Cooper if she walked in right now. I've never met her. She was a friend of somebody. Other people knew who she was. She had a serious need, and you stepped up and you met that need. This church puts together food boxes every year. 
participates in the berry pepper parade in Santa Land. We've got to figure out what we're going to do with Santa Land with the arson of the trailer, but <laughs> Dorothy is, uh, is becoming more involved over pro-life issues. I think you're now formally volunteering with, is that right? Have you been given the thumbs up in O'Neill or? <laughs> you did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, for the first couple of years we were here, Charlie and Nan invested hours and hundreds of hours of their lives in the reservation. They didn't stop because they stopped caring. They stopped because the reservation stopped making it possible for them to do that. This is a church that cares and loves the community very much. That's the face of this church. That really is the face of this church. My belief is that it's best if a pastor can live in a community. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. I've always believed that. We're not at a financial point where I can do that, and the church isn't, neither one of our churches is in a position to pull me away from the other. And so we, we split the difference every Sunday. Uh, somebody said to me, said just kind of in passing, I don't think it was a serious issue, but it, last year sometime, wow, 8 o'clock is really early to meet for church. It is. We're up at 5 and on the road at 6.30 so we can be with you every week. It is early. It's a sacrifice we all make in order to make this work. Uh, the third question under the, uh, the concerns is we are asked to bring people to Christ. It seems we are more concerned about building a biblically correct hierarchy in the church than bringing people to Christ. This is what is called a false dilemma. False dilemma is when you're given a set of possibilities and, and it's treated, the question is asked in such a way as to say you can only do one. Well, bringing people to Christ is important. Establishing biblical leadership is important because our own constitution says that the word of God is our supreme authority in all matters of faith and life. All matters of faith and life. Supreme authority. So, since, our, since the Bible speaks to the leadership of the church, we're actually disobedient if we don't follow what the Bible says. Was the Constitution wrong until we changed it? Yeah. Were people wicked in doing that way? No. I didn't say that. But there's a clear call for elder and deacon leadership within the church. It's not a, a, a biblical hierarchy. It's biblical leadership. Now, we focus for a few weeks on elder leadership because changing the Constitution is always a big step. Uh, by the way, uh, an, earlier, an earlier question kind of implied that not enough information was being provided as people had, as we came to issues. Now we're being told that too much information is being so, or provided as people face issues. So we've got, a, we've got different people. If we came up with a list of 20 different topics, and we did, you, you know what the caucus system in Iowa is, right? As, as I understand the caucus system, you got a candidate on this side of the room and a candidate in that side of the room, and over the course of the caucus, people just gravitate physically to where they are. If we took 10 issues and had, had if each one of these six banners was a position on that issue, every time we changed issues, people would be changing banners. We're not all the same. We're not all the same on a single issue. You might get two people, maybe three, who, who are right in line with each other, but then it starts to drift. So again, grace and mercy. 
Um, so we focused for a few weeks on, on elder leadership because changing the Constitution is a big step. If you go back and listen to the sermons that I've preached, if you check your notes, I have preached the gospel from this pulpit from the very beginning. And every time I preach the gospel, it's an opportunity for those of us who are Christians to be reminded of what it is and how to present it and how to talk to people and an opportunity to go out and reach. So I'm glad that the questioner is really concerned with bringing people to Christ. That's the aim of my preaching. For those of us who are Christians, the aim of the word of God is to strengthen our faith and build us in Christ and to equip us and enable us to go talk to people who don't know the Lord. And that's what I do every week. I took two weeks, literally just two weeks, to preach on on elders. So I don't think that we're more concerned with building a biblically correct hierarchy. I think we're concerned with biblical leadership. We're concerned with evangelism. We're concerned with benevolent care. We're concerned with, with growing in the word. Doing, doing Stephanie Westerhouse's funeral was, was the, it's the second most painful funeral I've preached. The worst was one in California about 20 years ago uh, for a three-and-a-half-year-old who got into her mom's Prozac. We'd babysat. We knew this family. Stephanie's funeral was devastating for me. And I sat and, and looked at a room full of people. It was a full church. And I don't know, two or three dozen of her former students from O'Neill. She taught music in O'Neill at several different places. They came. And the only thing I had of hope to offer was the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all there is. Stephanie knew the Lord, but many of them didn't. And it was an opportunity to say, please don't leave without doing that. I'm deeply concerned with evangelism. And I urge you to do it every week. A significant amount of time, in fact, as I'm closing a service in prayer, I'm asking God to fill our hearts with the gospel so that we can live according to it and fill my mouth with the gospel so that we can tell other people. The next question is people's feelings are hurt because they feel... Uh, things they feel as meaningful are just tradition. I think the sense is people's feelings are hurt because things that they feel are meaningful are being called just tradition. Traditions can be good or bad. There are some traditions that we have that are biblical. They come right out of the Bible. Why do we meet on Sundays? Because the early church, as far as we can see in the gospel, or in, in the book of Romans, met on the Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And so we meet on, on Sundays. If you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you believe in, in uh, uh, seventh, yeah, Seventh-day Adventist, yeah. You believe in meeting on the Sabbath, and there are other groups that believe in meeting on Saturday as, as well. But the truth is, the scriptures don't require Sunday morning. We could, we could do church on Monday night. And it's church. It is full-on church. It doesn't, we don't get any less blessing from it. We don't get any fewer points in heaven from God because we meet on Sunday night. So why don't we? Why, don't, why do we meet on Sunday morning? It's tradition. Is it a bad tradition? No. Not at all. 
traditions, most of them aren't even good or bad in, in that sense. There are other traditions that are not based on scripture, but are not wrong because of that. Lent is one of those traditions that's not based anywhere in scripture. It's not hinted at. It's not taught. But it's not a bad thing to do. If you don't know the history of Lent, some of you probably do, and feel free to correct me. Um, my understanding is that Lent began somewhere around the 3rd or 4th century. The church had, become, uh, had begun to baptize people on Easter Sunday. If you became a Christian, they would wait to baptize you until Easter Sunday. There's nothing magical about baptizing people on Easter Sunday. But in all honesty, you, I think you might agree, if you're going to pick one day of the year when you should baptize somebody, Easter Sunday is the day. Um, in preparation of those new believers for baptism, they began doing several weeks of instruction. And that simply became a pattern that they followed. We're going to be doing baptisms, Easter Sunday. If you want to be baptized, we want you to go through this instruction first. We're meeting down at John the Barber's house on Saturday night so that we can go through the Gospels and we can teach you what we need to teach you. That's where this habit began. Uh, 50 years go by, 100 years go by, and suddenly everybody's going to this, not just new believers. And... This is what inevitably happens with tradition. I say inevitably, I'm convinced of it. If, if you can show me that it doesn't happen, and you don't have to show me this in the Bible, because I don't think you can find it, but if you can show me it doesn't happen, I'll change my opinion. I think traditions, when they're not examined, inevitably become habit. See, Lent began as we have a purpose of teaching and training young believers. But, but within 50 or 100 years, it was just the observation that became the, the tradition. Not the preparation of young believers, it was just the habit of meeting. And at that point, it was kind of empty, but still not bad. Still not bad. Uh, as, as always, tr Scripture is our guide in, in everything, and that includes on the issue of tradition. Jesus had nothing good to say about tradition. If you look up the word tradition in your Bible, Jesus never spoke about tradition positively. The Apostle Paul did a couple of times, but he also spoke, to, spoke of it critically a couple of times. The issue is not the tradition. I have my traditions. You have your traditions. Um, to, uh, coming through Pierce tonight, pull into Casey's because my car is incapable of driving from Norfolk to Creighton without stopping at Casey's. Sunday morning is for coffee. Tonight I got a bottle of water. But it's just a tradition. See, there's nothing wrong with that. But, but what if I said I wasn't able to stop at Casey's and, and so there was this spiritual crisis? What if I make the tradition into a superstition? Has it become harmful? Yeah, because I'm no longer trusting in God and his character and his promises and his word. Now I'm trusting in the observation, in the, the tradition. If your feelings have been hurt because I've questioned your traditions, I apologize. That's not my intention. That is never my intention. I'm a teacher of the word of God. I'm commanded by the scripture to preach the word of God and the word of God only, 
and to care for your souls as best as I know how, as best as I can, through prayer and through teaching you what the Lord has said in his, in his word. That's what I'm required to do. And when I hear things that make it sound to me as though a tradition matters more than what Scripture says, I become concerned. That's my reason for doing that. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. J.C. Ryle was an Anglican pastor in the 1800s, back when the Anglican church was still uh, faithful to the Lord. He said this, If I say hard things, it is not because I do not love you. I write as I do, I speak as I do, because I desire your full salvation. He is your best friend who tells you the most truth. The opposite side of that and the opposite side of of Proverbs 27 is the person who protects your feelings but ignores your soul is your enemy. I hate to be disliked. I'm an introvert. I've mentioned that. Being an introvert means I don't know how to talk to people well. I don't know how to do small talk. I don't know how to read social cues. I miss all of that. And when I think somebody doesn't like me, I carry it. I don't know what to do with it, but I carry it. And so what I say is meant out of love. I'll tell you the truth as I see it in Scripture. I'll tell you the Scripture that is coming to mind. And then I just ask that you go to that Scripture and examine it. If I say to you, I think that this practice may not square with what the Bible says, here's why, and you go look at it and you come back and say, I've examined that and read it and I don't see a problem, my job is done. It truly is. But I wouldn't be loving you if I didn't speak when I feel that there's a need to speak. So I'll make you a deal. In the day of judgment, if Jesus rebukes me for challenging a tradition... I'll ask your forgiveness. But until then, I can only go with what I see the scriptures say. Let's move on to biblical issues. Why does everything have to be so in-depth? Yes, it's okay for some, but for those who are not Bible scholars, we are made to feel beneath everyone else. Um, In-depth is a relative term. I suspect that this person doesn't listen a lot to John MacArthur and, and teachers like that. Um, this is why I teach the way I do. The Bible is the word of God. It is not words about God. It is his word. It is his voice. Hebrews 4, I think verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. See, the Bible is something that is still alive. It is the echo of of God's voice down through human history. And so why go into it as deep as as I can? Well, okay, I don't go into it as deep as I can. I had a... At our first church in California, I was preaching through Romans, and I did a Sunday morning service. I think I preached 55 minutes on two verses. And this guy came up and he said, you know... I don't think that there's anything that could be said that you didn't say. And I said, thank you. And he said, okay. He really didn't mean it as a compliment. It's like, you know, and, uh, and Linda will tell you, I've 
I've lightened up the depth. I've tried to make, I've, that's one of the reasons sometimes I look at a small passage. Looking at a small passage allows us to take a little bit more time without cramming everything in, in depth. I mean this with all care and respect. If you don't believe that you need to be taught the Word of God on a regular basis, why are you sitting under my teaching? If after four and a half years you don't know that I'm going to teach you the Bible as faithfully as I can, why would you submit to it? Do you, why would you think that one day I'm just going to change and go to a, a brief homily? I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. Linda's cringing. That sounded bad, I suppose. But I've never met anybody who knew enough of Scripture. I don't know enough of Scripture. I learn things every time I study, every time I go to it. Jesus commands us in the Great Commission to teach disciples to obey everything that he commanded. The comment is made for those who aren't Bible scholars were made to feel beneath everyone else. I've never looked down on anyone who wants to know what the Word of God says or who doesn't know enough about the Word of God says, ever. My job is teaching. I love to teach. I love to teach. And, and I understand this. I understand that sometimes my response can sound condescending. And I hate that. I don't want to sound like that. But this is my area of expertise. I was practicing law the other day with Dwayne Westerhouse. They just lost their daughter, and he was asking some questions. And I gave him some legal advice. And Kelsey, my primary legal advice was you need to contact an attorney. But I also said to him clearly, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. So there's things that you can do, though. I mentioned it this morning, and Kelsey came up after and gave me exactly what they can do. That's her area of expertise. That's where her degree is. It's what she does. This is where my master's degree is, and it's what I've done for 25 years. So when you say, is it true that this is in the Bible, and I say, no, it's not, please don't get offended at that. I'm doing what you've asked me to do. I'm answering the question you put to me. We have a midweek, we've had a midweek Bible study since the fall of 2013. Danny Kelsey have had, and Kelsey have had theirs for couple of years now I think every single week I invite you to open your Bible to the passage I'm, see I'm teaching so that you can see it for yourself and follow along I put verses on the screen so that you can follow cross references I, as I preach I keep directing your mind to the word of God I keep bringing you back to what scripture says I read it repeatedly I do everything I know how to do so you can learn what God says to you and we do everything that we can to provide multiple opportunities for you to learn the, the word, not to mention that there are a number of very good teachers on, on the radio and Internet. There's a lot of dross, too, but there are good teachers out there. So if somebody feels, if somebody feels like they're made to feel beneath everybody else, I suppose part of my response has to be we're doing everything that we can so that that doesn't have to be the case. We're doing everything that we can so that you can know what the Scripture says. Every Sunday I invite you to turn in your Bibles. Many of you don't bring Bibles. That's your choice. I've, I've never rebuked a single person for not bringing a Bible to church. I won't, but that's the choice that you make. The opportunity is there. 
If you feel badly about that, if you feel that somebody is being condescending or insulting, would you please say something in that moment? As somebody who doesn't read social clues very well, if you come back and say, you know, five weeks ago I said this and you said, I've got no idea how to even respond to that. If in that moment you'll say, well, wait a second, that sounds kind of condescending. That sounds like you're putting me down. I can identify what I just said and take responsibility and be accountable for it with you. I hope you don't feel bad anymore. I hope you'll take the opportunity to learn. The, the second question in that biblical area was, why do we need deacons and elders? Um, I, I, I just did two messages on that, and so you can find the links on, on Facebook there. Simply stated, it's because it's what the New Testament models and commands us to have for leadership in the church. It's the only model that we're given. It's the only form of local church leadership that's commanded or supported in the scripture. If you were raised in a, in a denomination or a confession that had multiple layers, those multiple layers are not found in scripture. If you were told by that denomination or confession, these are all found in scripture, then you weren't being told the truth. They're not found in scripture. People have felt free over the last 2,000 years to modify and, and I, I know the man who is the pastor of uh, Lincoln Berean Church. Lincoln Berean Church is a mega church. They've got four or 5,000 members. Brian Clark is, is the pastor there. They've got, I don't know, six or eight or ten pastors on staff. They've got probably six or eight or ten or twelve elders. They've got this hierarchy because of the number of people who are there. Just practically speaking, they have to have secretaries. They have to have gender. They have to have all of that. But we understand from a biblical point of view, what we were given is actually fairly simple and straightforward, not complex. And, and so I encourage you to listen to those messages I gave in, Jan, in January. The links are on Facebook. Uh, this coming Saturday, we're going to start a, a twice-monthly uh, study through the book Biblical Eldership by Alexander Strauch. I encourage you to pur- purchase the book and come and join us for that study. Just, just come and follow along. We're just going to read through the book together. We're not going to... This, this isn't rocket science. It's actually fairly straightforward. The third question is uh, Mark 8, 31 to 38. When have we seen the church rebuke Christ by focusing only on the ways of humanity? Um, I have to admit, when I saw this question, I had no idea where it came from. I've I've got no idea what the context is, so I decided I'll just answer the question as it is. First of all, here's Mark 8, 31 to 38. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Going on, he um, 
in this passage, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Um, I think that probably the question has to do with the, the first part of it, where Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus turns around and answers him. And the question is, maybe when have we seen the church rebuke Christ by focusing only on the ways of humanity? Uh, let me give you two examples uh, some of you came out of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the ELCA church here. And so I did a little bit of reading. The ELCA was formed in 1988, is my understanding. And almost from the beginning, were very friendly toward homosexuality. In 2009, they endorsed homosexual clergy. If in 2009, they endorsed homosexual clergy, then well before that, they had decided that homosexuality is not only acceptable, it's good. In 2011, they endorsed homosexual marriage. The ELCA also permits abortion, views the virgin birth as a symbol rather than what their, their book of doctrine calls, and this is a quote, a freakish intervention in the course of nature. They deny the historical truth, inerrancy, and infallibility of the Bible, the authority of the Bible. They deny that Jesus understood that his own death was a sacrifice for sin. They believe Jesus didn't know why he was dying. And they deny some, if not all, of Jesus' miracles as mythology. Well, it's fair to say then that as a denomination, and I don't know about any particular pastor or church. In fact, I know Steve Lund in Norfolk who pastored an ELCA church until 2011 or 2012. He never would have agreed with those things. So every church is going to differ a little bit. But as a denomination, the denomination has turned and rebuked Jesus because their, their minds are set on the things of man, not the things of God. Another example, last year a United Methodist bishop named, named Karen Olivetto um, said this in a sermon. Too many folks want to box Jesus in, carve him in stone, make an idol out of him. Jesus is the son of God who is worthy of worship. You can't make an idol out of God. But this story cracks the pedestal we've put him on. I don't know what story she's telling. The wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting one, prince of peace, was as human as you and me. Like you and me, he didn't have his life figured out. Like you and uh, he was still growing, maturing, putting the pieces together about who he was and what he was supposed to do. We might think of him as the rock of ages, but he was more like a hunk of clay forming and reforming himself in relation to God. That's heretical. This woman is damned. She's going to hell if this is her belief. She has so denied the person of Christ. I don't have this quote on the screen. She said in, a, in another place that Jesus defined himself according to his relationships with people. How, how more humanistic can you get than to say God defines himself by what people want 
from him. So the United Methodist Church, uh, to the degree that Bishop Oliveto represents them, has turned and rebuked Jesus Christ. Because their minds are not set on the things of God, but the things of man. That being said, let me preach for a moment or two. It's possible for us to rebuke Jesus too. When we argue against the scripture, we're rebuking Jesus for claiming to be right. When we refuse to obey him as Lord, we are rebuking him for thinking that he has the right to command us. When we treat Jesus as a hobby, we're rebuking him for thinking that he should be everything to us. And we do these things because our minds are set on us and not on him. And we do those things, and as Christians, the Spirit of God comes in and he convicts us of that. Uh, a lot of suffering, I think, is, is there because I start clinging to stuff, and that suffering breaks my hands loose of the things that can't help me, and I, and I reach for him, and it frees up my grip so that I hold more closely to him. The, the final question from a biblical point of view is, what is a biblical view of baptism? And I'm, I'm glad that this is such an easy, simple question to answer in a brief amount of time. Um, it, it's, it's really not. It really needs a, a full message in order to be able to go through what the Word of God said. But let me summarize a couple things. Baptism is an act of obedience to the Lord Jesus. He commands us in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, uh, to baptize all of his disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The baptism is never described as necessary to salvation. It's never described as bringing about any spiritual change. It's a picture of the tremendous change that happens at salvation, at regeneration, at the new birth. Romans 6 says that Christians are baptized into Jesus' death and raised with him in newness of life. The only requirement for baptism is personal faith in Jesus. So there is no barrier to children being baptized as long as they can voice faith in Christ. That does leave infants out. But I'm going to explain to you why that's okay. First, let me say this. My kids, Kevin and Sarah and Grace, all put their trust in Jesus when they were about four or five. The girls were baptized within a year or two of that. Grace actually wanted to be baptized at four, and we kind of made her wait a little bit to make sure she wasn't just joining. But she kept bringing it up. Because of Kevin's physical handicap, he's, uh, handicap, he's in a wheelchair. Uh, we didn't baptize him till he was a teenager. And I offended people when I baptized my son. I was in a church where most people believed in baptism by immersion. Can't immerse a full-grown, handicapped adult. And so we put a towel around his neck and I poured water on him. And I offended people because of that. I might offend some of you because of that. Others here might be saying, immersion, why would you do that? Just sprinkle him. See, I don't think that the methodology is magic because I don't believe that baptism is magic. I don't believe that baptism is what makes the change. I believe baptism is what is a picture of the change that's taken place. Now, infant baptism has been commonly practiced for over a thousand years. Some have tried to connect 
uh, infant baptism with Old Testament circumcision, but baptism and circumcision in Scripture are just never brought together. The only time you even find the word baptize and circumcise within the same small set of verses is when Paul is speaking about spiritual circumcision and spiritual baptism, not physical circumcision and physical baptism. I think that one of the reasons infant baptism became common was because of superstition. People were being taught by the church that if your child isn't baptized and they die, they'll go to hell. We have to baptize them. If you're told that and you don't have the scripture, and and keep in mind that if, if you weren't a scholar or a priest until 1500, you didn't have a Bible. You had to believe what you were told, and people did. But I want you to think about this. That belief that infants who are not baptized go to hell is an accusation against the love and the mercy of God. It says God doesn't want to save your baby. But if you baptize your baby, you can trick him. You can't trust in the goodness of God. You can't trust in the mercy and the grace of God. You have to catch him. You have to put him in a, in a place where he can't refuse as though God is up there saying that baby died and I'd really rather send it to hell, but oh, they just baptized it. Well, I guess I have to take it. Is that really what we believe about our God? Or do we, we believe that he's the, one, the savior on the cross who said to the thief next to him, who never had an opportunity to raise his hand, go forward, sign a card or be baptized, ascend, uh, go to a Sunday school class, be confirmed, today you'll be with me in paradise. Baptism is a precious picture of faith. And when that faith is present, if it's present in a four-year-old, I'll baptize him. I've got no problem doing that. What are you laughing at? Oh, just not our kid. Well, that's your kid's different because we know our kid. We don't baptize anyone to make sure that God can't reject them. We don't baptize anyone to make sure that God can't work away around his grace. We baptize because his grace has been poured out. And we know it's been poured out because there's faith. And there's belief. So what, what happens to an infant who dies? What happens to a stillborn child? What happens to an aborted child? What happens to people who are severely Retarded. Our son was cognitively able to understand who Jesus is and his need for a savior and trust. We knew another couple older than us, our, our parents' age, uh, Gary and Carolyn, who had a son who from birth had been in, in a vegetative state. What about him? God is a God of mercy. God is a God of mercy. And his grace and mercy are poured out on those who are innocent. Old Roman Catholicism said that um, the, the stain of sin is such on an infant that the infant carries guilt. The nature of sin is there, true. But the stain of sin is not carried away in two different steps, one by baptism and one by faith in Jesus. It's taken away by the cross of Jesus completely, perfectly, entirely. That's the gospel that we proclaim. That's the gospel that we preach. The person who says, but it wouldn't hurt to baptize my baby. It does. It does. Because you're saying, I can't trust God. I have to do something else to make sure. 
and it does hurt. It does cause you to, to, in that moment of crisis with Dwayne and Donna, to look back at a moment of time and say, that's my hope, instead of looking to their living God and Savior and saying, he is my hope. Jesus Christ is my hope. So I don't believe that infant baptism is biblical. We've had that discussion with the, uh, at the Vision Council. Some of that was warm, but I think it was always friendly and respectful. There's dearly held views. R.C. Sproul would baptize infants, but he didn't believe it took anything away, and it was simply a matter of, uh, for him of this is a promise of the hope of salvation perhaps to come, provided that they believe in Jesus. And he believed that then when that adult believed in Jesus, they should be rebaptized as a believer. I just feel like that's a, li- a little wiggly. I want my confidence, I want your confidence, each and every one of you in the room, I want your confidence to be in, in what God has promised you in his word and for you to believe it because he's God and he's trustworthy. Not because you've got some, some, some gimmick that he can't get out of. You have to make me sign a contract. You've all signed contracts. You've all bought cars. You've all bought houses. You have to sign a contract. We have to do that because we're not trustworthy. Kelsey makes her living as a lawyer because people can't be trusted. If people could be trusted, you wouldn't need a lawyer. We have cops because people can't be trusted. But our God can be trusted. And when he says, I will, he will. When Jesus says, I won't fail, he won't fail. And so my desire is to press you closer to him and to encourage you to be closer to him. That's it for the, the questions that we have. It's 10 after 7. I'll open it up. I'm okay with not being put on the spot, too. Well, there's going to be some more questions, so you can answer as many as you Yeah, yeah. I, I think we need to have a question box back there, and when we get up, I was actually surprised. I thought it'd take longer than an hour to kind of move through all of that, but we get down then to another eight or ten questions, then we just kind of do this again on a Sunday night. Uh, what I'd like to do is uh, maybe the second Sunday in April, since the first Sunday in April is Easter, the second Sunday, uh, do an evening time. We've got this movie called uh, Is Genesis History? And they're taking the view that it is history, that the earth is a young earth, and uh, it's, it's a fascinating video. We've, Linda and I have seen it multiple times. Really, really encouraging. And there are other kinds of materials, too, that we could do on a monthly basis, just in terms of how do we, how do we learn this, how do we learn that? What, a, what about an evangelism skill? What about something like that? So then every two or three months, four months, like Danny was saying, we can just kind of do a Q&A time. I love all of you. I, I don't know all of you as, as well as I know some, but I love all of you. I value every single one of you. I'm sorry I don't know how to show it better, but I do. I truly do. Now let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word and the way it, it, it provides a foundation that cannot be shaken for us. 
I have so many questions that I long to be able to answer with utter clarity. And the only way I can begin to do that is, is by going to your word. And I have other questions, Lord, that I don't know that they'll ever be answered. And I just have to leave those in your hands. I thank you for each person here tonight. Lord, there are others who would have intended to be here, but life got in the way. And I thank you for them too. We want to be a people who are built upon your word, who love Jesus Christ more than anything else, who live as faithful, obedient disciples, and who take the gospel to the lost. So would you please grip us with that each and every day? Would you grip us with the urgency as you did with me after Stephanie died? The brevity of life and how quickly life can end and there's just not time to waste. Would you give us the courage and the love to speak honestly to people? Would you give us the courage to risk hurting people's feelings and then take responsibility for that if we do, but risk hurting people's feelings in order to tell them the truth? Lord, you know that as people, we don't, we don't like to be unpleasant. We don't like to cause conflict. We don't like to make people feel uncomfortable. But the reality is, is if, if we're going to share the gospel with people, they're going to feel some of that offense. Some will be deeply offended at you and at the idea that they're sinners. So please be, persuade us that the word of God is true, that scripture is true, and that your ability to save is perfect. And that your readiness to save is constant. <coughs> Grant us your, your peace as we go tonight. Uh, let uh, Lyndon, Mom, and I get home safely as, as we drive. Um, protect everyone from the, the weather that is supposed to be coming. And Lord, gather us again in your name and in your love next Sunday morning. We thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. This is recorded. Uh, I will get it online tonight, and I'll send a link to Danny, and tomorrow a link will be, or later tonight. depends on how late I'm up and how late you're up, but we will get it.